Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? He is. Amen? He is. He's the only one worthy. And we worship him and honor him. And we're so glad that he is who he is. Amen? And so we're truly, truly grateful. Is the Speaker of the House in the house? You are. just want to recognize today we have with us uh, Kirk Cox, who is our representative uh, for the delegate in our area, as well as the Speaker of the House. And so I want to just say welcome to him today, being with us, uh, doing that because of his faith. He's here sharing his testimony in class this morning. We're grateful for that. Uh, but also for his strong stand against abortion. We're grateful for that as well. So thank you, brother. We've been going through the book of John uh, this whole year, uh, talking about only Jesus. That's what it's all about, amen? Amen. That's why we're here. It's only Jesus. But yet we live in a selfie world, and it's hard sometimes to see the Savior in this selfie world. But we need to turn our hearts and our minds toward Jesus in all things. So what we've seen already in the Gospel of John is that he is the eternal word. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that he is the transformer, the temple cleanser. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the greater one. A couple weeks ago, we saw that he was the sole satisfier, and we pick up today again in chapter 4 as the only hope. He's the only hope. It is what hope is what people are looking for today. Hope is what people have been looking for since the beginning of the garden after Adam and Eve took of the fruit. People have been looking for hope. Hope for our children, hope for our country, hope in tragedy, hope in difficulty, hope in trials, hope in family situations, hope in health issues, hope in death. And when we think about death, this is what the nobleman, as we'll find in our passage of Scripture today, that he is looking for. He is looking for hope because his son is about to die. Everything likely had been tried to save his son, but to no avail. And so the nobleman hears that Jesus is in Cana, some 18 to 20 miles away. And so he goes desperate and he goes looking for hope that he believes he will find in Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this passage of scripture this morning, the question that we need to ask ourselves is where is it that we're finding hope? Where is it that we are looking for hope? We know where we can find hope, which is in Jesus, but maybe you're here today and you've been looking for hope in the wrong places. Maybe you're trying to find hope in the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. Or maybe you're trying to find hope on TV with some of these people who think they can tell you where to find hope and has nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe you're trying to find hope in some addiction or something somewhere else. But what we find today that I'm going to find, in, we'll find in this passage of Scripture, where we find hope, we find the only hope, and that only hope is in Jesus Christ. Y'all with me this morning? Say amen. amen. Well, we're going to look at John 4, verses 43 to 54. And so in honor and reverence to the Word of God, if you'd please stand as I read that passage for us today. It's a passage of Scripture that may be not one that you would count as your favorite passage, one that you may not even be familiar with, but it has a lot of punch and a lot of power to it. As we look at this story about the nobleman and his son and what Jesus does here. Picking up verse 
Verse 43. And after the two days he departed from there, went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. But the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. And this again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word And indeed, it is a powerful passage of Scripture that reminds us of who you are and what our response needs to be. And God, I pray that you'd be with us to respond well to the passage of Scripture today. That we would take the Word and apply it to our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would speak to each of us to live it out. Lord, we need you. We need you to speak. We need you to have your way in our hearts and our lives. There are those here that don't know you as Lord and Savior. May this be the hour of salvation to find that you are still able to save and to heal and to deliver. And Father, maybe we're here today and there are those here who are struggling with family members, who are struggling with issues of life or or health or forgiveness or bitterness or whatever the case may be. Lord, may you deliver and heal in those situations as well. Lord, whatever the case may be, as people gather together, we never know what's going on in people's homes or in their hearts. But we know this, that you know all things. And so, Lord, may you guide us in all that's said and done here today, and may we receive from you the word in which we need to receive, to walk away knowing that we have been in the presence of a mighty God who has touched us and been with us. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Looking at the bulletin this morning... I hesitate before I begin because I think I might get ready to change the message just a bit. And that scares me. It probably should scare you too at the moment. But as I look at this passage of scripture, I, I want to shift just a little bit. And I want to use do the second point first instead of the first point. And the second point, so I know this is going to really blow those guys. Sorry about that, Ethan. We'll move to the second point. Then we'll go back to the first event. But when we come to this passage of Scripture, we want to look at the story and see what's taking place here. As Jesus has, a couple of weeks ago we preached this, we were talking about the woman at the well. And if you remember, Jesus had left Judea and gone through Samaria, not gone around Samaria, but gone through Samaria to Galilee. 
And in so doing, he had to go there because he knew of his appointment with the woman at the well who would hear from Jesus. Jesus would speak to her. She would find that he is the one who truly satisfies her soul. He's the one uh, who, who quenches that thirst that she has. And she goes back to the town. The town sends people out, and they hear about Jesus. They talk to him, and they come to believe in him. And then the Bible says in the latter part of that, that section we looked at that he stayed there for two days. This picks up right there. That after two days, it says, he departed from there and went to Galilee. And so now he's in Galilee. And as he's going into Galilee, we'll talk about this in a moment, that you know he talks about how prophets not welcome in his own home, but yet he goes home to Galilee. And as he's there, there's this man who hears that Jesus is coming. He comes to Cana again, Jesus does, the place where he changed the water into wine. So people had heard about Jesus, known what he had done there. And so the man from, the nobleman from Capernaum, hears that Jesus is there, and he is desperate because his son is at the point of death. And he doesn't know what else to do, but he goes to Jesus because he heard that he can heal, that he can do things that nobody else can, that there's something different about this Jesus. And so what the man does, he comes to Jesus, and he implores him, the Bible says, and he begs him to come and to heal his son. And Jesus doesn't do that, we see right away. He doesn't come at all, but he, he offers a rebuke there, which we'll look at in just a minute. But the man still says, Jesus, sir, come and heal my son. And Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. Well, the man goes back on his way back to town, back to where his home is, to his son. And on the way, he's met by servants. And the servants, I read it this way. They said, your son lives. I don't think they said it that way. I think they came, they saw him from a distance, and they began to run. And they said, sir, your son is alive. He lives. And when he heard that, the joy that must have bubbled up in his heart, but yet he said, okay, so when was it that he began to be healed? And they said, at the seventh hour. And he knew that it was at the very moment that Jesus spoke that the son began to live, the fever left. There's power in that. And so what we think and what we know here about this past scripture is we look at this passage of scripture and we see that Jesus is the only hope. Amen? He's the only hope. And so we move to the second point. I promise we'll go back to the first point. We're going to move to the second point, and we see, well, what does it take? If Jesus is the only hope, then what must our response be? What are we supposed to do? And here's the answer to that question. We are to believe. That's what it takes to believe in the only hope. And the first thing that we want to look at at this belief is a convenient belief. A convenient belief. Now, I want you to write that down in your, in your block, or you can type that into your app. I love that, by the way. Type that into your app, a convenient belief. But then, if you have paper, I want you to put an X over that, because I don't want you to have convenient belief. That's not the belief we're supposed to have. But Jesus deals with the convenient belief. He, can, he deals with it in the people who are here in Cana. And so we find it here in verse 45, where it tells us, Jesus has just said in verse 44, prophet is no honor in his own country. And then he comes to Galilee, and the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So the people here are receiving Jesus into Galilee, his hometown. But understand this, that receiving him does not mean the same thing as honoring him. They welcome him, but he explains, we'll see in a minute, that he recognizes that they're not really honoring him, but rather... They are just receiving him. 
because they had seen all the things that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. You remember that Jesus, what we know about the Lord, is that Jesus knows all things, amen? And Jesus knows every heart. He knows what's going on in the lives of people. He knows every heart. If you remember at the end of John chapter 2, Uh, that we looked at several weeks ago after he cleansed the temple, we came to that passage of Scripture, and at the end of chapter 2, it said these words, that many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew that the people who were coming to him at that point were just coming because of the signs. And they did not have this belief in him. They just believed in his signs. They wanted to see what he was up to. And now he's come again to Cana, where he's done the sign of the turning the water into wine. And so what we find here is that the people are constantly looking for signs. Over and over again, throughout all the scripture in the New Testament, we find that that's what in the Gospels, as they're talking about Jesus, that people would come to where he was, and many would come with this convenient belief that he was able to perform a sign, but all they were looking for was a sign. They were just looking for the signs. It was a convenient belief. This convenient belief that the people had is like this. It's like, what's in it for me? They come to Jesus to see what he's about to do, and they want to know what's in it for me. And so what Jesus does is he recognizes because he knows the heart of the people, right? Amen? He knows the hearts of all the people, and so he calls them all out in it uh, in verse 48. And it tells us that he speaks to him, that Jesus says to him, the nobleman. But we know that he speaks to more than one person because the word you there, unless you people, see signs, is plural. Now, some translations don't have the word people, but I think the New King James has it correct. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. So he's talking to all these people who are there because there are a group of people there who are looking to Jesus for just what he can bring to them. It's a convenient faith of seeking the signs and seeking what he will do. So these people do not have an authentic faith In Jesus, it's simply a convenient faith. They're wanting to see what God can do for them. They're they're not wanting to see God himself, but they're wanting to use God for their own benefit. You see what I'm saying? It's a convenient belief. And Jesus knows that it's all about the heart. And so he calls them out here, and their hearts are not in the right place. They're not seeking to seeking him as the Son of God, as the Messiah. No, they're just seeking the signs and the wonders and what he can do. That kind of belief does not honor Jesus, beloved. That rather dishonors Jesus. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 7 and 8, where Jesus speaks to those who were around him there at that time, the Jews, the Pharisees. And he says, hypocrites, why did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying that these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they are honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so here's what we see here is that the people are honoring him, what, we, what some would look as, as honor, with their lips, or they're wanting to see him do these signs. But Jesus says, I know your heart, and your heart is not in the right place. It is far from me. 
that those kinds of folks have this convenient belief. It's not a belief that Jesus is the Messiah or the Anointed One or the Son of God, the true King, but it's more like this belief is uh, He's the show for today. He can offer me some excitement in the moment. He's an interesting character that I need to look at for now. He's my entertainment, and He gets me what I want. You see, even then, as it is now, it was very selfie oriented, all one-sided, all about what's in it for me. It's a convenient belief. Y'all with me? But as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's not unlike people today. People today still have this convenient belief sometimes. So they'll say, oh, yes, I, I know Jesus. I believe that, that he died. I, I believe that he, he did something great. He rose from the dead. I've said a prayer. I have my fire insurance from hell. And when I need him to pull me out of a jam, I know that I can call on him and he'll get me out of it. And then I'm going to go about what I want to do until I need him again. Beloved, that is a convenient belief that does not honor the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of my ministry, I've seen it happen over and over again where people will say they believe in Jesus, but there is no faith. There is no belief in Him and following Him and loving Him and having a relationship with Him. They will say they believe in Him and they'll have a brush with difficulty or they'll have a close call or they may get close to death. And then right after that, you'll see them. They'll show up at church for a few weeks to pay their dues, if you will. And it's not long before they're out doing their own thing their own, own way again. You see, it's a convenient belief that does not honor the Lord Jesus Christ because our heart is far from Him. So if you wrote convenient belief, that's what it takes, make sure you put an X because that's not what we're looking for. Amen? Not a convenient belief. But what we find next is not a convenient belief, but a convinced belief. A convinced belief that we see in the nobleman. Now, as we think about a nobleman, I mean, you probably hadn't heard too many Bible school stories about the nobleman and maybe a few Sunday school stories about the nobleman. But what is a nobleman? Well, the word itself in the Greek means the ro a royal official or a king's, king's man. He's a nobleman. He works with the king. So likely, he is a man who works with the king. Who, and, and because of that, he has means. He has power. He has money. He has things at his fingertips that he could use. And so what we find here is that we look in verse 46, that when Jesus came to Cana of Galilee, where, Jesus, and he, where he made the water wine, there was this certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so he went to him. And he implored him, begging him, pleading with him to come down and to heal his son, for he's at the point of death. This nobleman, a man of means who has money and all kinds of things at his, at his pleasure, nothing's able to fix his son who has a fever. Nothing's able to work. He's done everything within his power that he knows to do. This son is at the point of death. His life is hanging by a thread. He took a chance by just leaving Capernaum to go to Jesus in Cana, some 18 or 20 miles away. And by the way, they didn't drive cars, just so you know. All right, He had to get there. And as he gets there, he goes to Jesus. His son is about to die. He hears about Jesus. He hears that Jesus is in Cana. Everything else has been tried, and his son's about to die. He is desperate. 
He is desperate for something to happen. And so he goes to Jesus, who is the only hope. Because he believes, he has this convinced belief that Jesus can heal his son. And as he comes to Jesus, the Bible says he implores him. That means pleads, begs to come down and to heal him. And then right after he, he has come all this way, and he finds Jesus, and he's begging him and pleading with him to come to heal his son, we find these words in verse 48, that Jesus says to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, when we read that, maybe that's why we don't talk about this one too much, because that really hurts our feelings a little bit, doesn't it? And that didn't sound like the Jesus we know. Jesus, we would have expected him to say, well, let's go. Let's go take care of this or, or whatever in that moment. But instead, this nobleman whose son is at the verge of death, Jesus is speaking to him. But also, as we mentioned, he's speaking to all the people who are around them. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you by no means believe. What Jesus is doing is he is speaking directly to the people, but also directly to the nobleman. And to the nobleman, he is trying to lift him up to the place of faith. Where all these people are seeking signs and wonders, but what are you looking for? Where is your heart? So he's lifting this fellow to a deeper faith. He's causing this nobleman to search within himself to see what is it that he really believes. Is it that you really just believe in me for a sign, or do you really believe in me? That's what Jesus is asking here. He's saying to the man, where is your heart? Check your heart, and what do you really believe? And at that point, we see that the man says in verse 49, he says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. He calls the child a child, not his son. It's a more tender word. He uses the word sir, meaning he has placed himself under the authority of Jesus. And so what has happened here is that the nobleman, a man of means, a man of power, a man of prestige and money and wealth, who works with the king, has now humbled himself because he recognizes that he needs Jesus and that he himself is helpless and that he is desperate for him. And so as he submits to the authority of Jesus and surrenders himself to him, he is placing his everything he knows about life in the hands of Jesus at this moment. And he has this convinced belief that Jesus is able. All that had been important to him is no longer important. He is turning to Jesus. Beloved, it reminds me of the 121st Psalm where we say, the, David, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In other words, I recognize who my helper is. I recognize that it's not me and it's not the things of this world that can help me, but it's the creator of this earth. It's the creator of heaven. He's the one that I'm depending upon. He's the one that I'm turning to. He's the one that I trust can help and save and deliver. 
And so that's what he does. He believes Jesus is able to come and to heal and to save and to deliver his son. And so what does Jesus do? He says, go your way. Your son lives. And then the nobleman believes the word that Jesus spoke and he went his way. He believed and he went his way. He acts upon what he believes. Jesus, notice here that Jesus doesn't give him a sign in the sky. Okay, I'm going to heal him, but here's how you'll know. No, he doesn't even go with him. But what he does is he only gives the nobleman a word. Go. Your son lives. And the Bible says that the nobleman believed his word. And he left. He went back. You see, convince, believe, acts upon what he believes. He, he believed it and he acted upon it. It reminds me of what Jesus said to Thomas after he'd been resurrected from the grave. And Thomas was with the disciples and he said, Look, I don't believe that he's really been risen. I got to see the scars. I got to see his hands. Then Jesus appears and he shows him the scars in his hands and scars in his side. And Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what happens here with this nobleman. That he did not see, but he believes. It's a convinced faith. He sees the unseen, and he is convinced of the power of God and the answer of God. So the question then for us this morning is, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a faith that's a convinced faith or convenient faith? Is it a convenient belief or a convinced belief? Do you trust Jesus by faith that he is who he says he is and that he can save, that he can heal, that he can deliver? Do you have the faith to see the unseen? Do you believe that Jesus can do the same in your life that Jesus did in the nobleman's son? Let me tell you what. The Lord Jesus has not lost not one ounce of his power. Amen? He is still able to save to the uttermost and to deliver and to heal. He is our deliverer. He is our healer. He is our savior. Bible tells in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. He is able to do far more than what you can even conjure up in your mind. He is that powerful. And he is able to save and deliver. And listen, he doesn't always answer the way we think he should. We think that he should. But authentic faith believes anyway and acts upon that faith. Notice the nobleman said, Jesus, come. But Jesus said, go. Right? You ever notice that? The Lord doesn't always answer things the way we think he should. Sometimes he does, but not always. Yeah, I noticed that, Pastor. Why is it that the... The Lord doesn't answer the way I want him to. Well, there's a good reason for that. He's God. You're not. Amen? He knows best. And here's what else you need to know. He's always faithful and trustworthy. 
Amen? You can always trust him. But pastor, you don't understand. I've been praying for this situation for so long, the situation in my family, the situation at work, the situation here or there, in my own life, somebody else. I've been praying for this, and I don't understand why God has not answered that, question, answered that yet. Beloved, I don't have the answer to that. But I'll tell you this. We only see one side of the picture. God sees both sides. Amen? He sees both sides of the picture. We trust him with this faith, believing. We see the unseen. We believe him by faith. It's a convinced belief. Do you believe that in him? He had a belief that moved. Do you really believe? What do you really believe about Jesus? Is he the only hope? Do you pray believing? Do you move at his command? Do you obey even if it doesn't seem logical? That's what the nobleman did here. Then he had not only this convinced belief, he had a confirmed belief. Notice what happens there in verse 51 and following. So he believed the word that Jesus spoke, and so he goes back home. He's headed home. He's on the way. And as he's now going down, his servants meet him and told him, saying, Your son lives. He's alive. And so he said, okay, well, when was the hour when he got better? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. I mean, it was a confirmed belief that the nobleman believes, this guy is who he says he is. It's confirmation that he is who he is. The healing had taken place at the very exact time that Jesus said, your son lives. And so this then moves him as he acted upon his faith and he moved out and then he found out what God had done and moved him to a deeper level of faith. What happened was is that on that road as he met those servants and he had them tell them what had happened when he believed that Jesus healed him and then he had it confirmed, it took him to a deeper level in his belief, a deeper level in his growth and in faith. Because here's what we need to know, friends, is that our faith is never supposed to stay the same. We're to constantly be growing in our faith. Y'all with me this morning? We're not to just get saved and we're satisfied with that. Yes, we're saved, but we're to grow in our faith. And here's what you need to understand is that a faith that goes is a faith that grows. Acting upon your faith, exercising your faith. A faith that goes is a faith that grows. Henry Blackaby would say this, and we learned this in Experiencing God. He would call something like this as a crisis of belief. That when you obey God, and He does what only He can do, and you experience that, then you grow in your faith. And that's what this man experienced, and his faith grew. Because our faith, as I said, is not to remain the same. Our faith is not based on one single experience in the past, but it continues to grow as we walk with the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord, as we obey the Lord, as we see him work in our lives, and we depend on him in the difficult times. That's how we grow. So there was this convinced belief, the confirmed belief that we want to have both of those. And then next we want to see in this passage of Scripture that there's also a contagious belief. In verse 53, it tells us that as the servants, as the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. His whole household believed. Now understand that the son never saw Jesus. His wife never saw Jesus. 
Whoever else was in that household never saw Jesus, but the whole household came to know Jesus because of the testimony of what God did in the life of the man and the son. Amen? It was a contagious belief. The whole household, household believed in Jesus. So the question then is, do people near you, in your home, in your work, wherever you are, do they know what you believe? Do they know who you believe? Do they know of your belief in Jesus? Are you meeting people where they are and pointing them to Jesus? Because when Jesus, listen, when Jesus has changed your life and when he has given you life and when he has shown you life and when he has promised you eternal life, then that belief in him that you have should be and would be contagious to the people who are all around you. Amen? Because we believe in Jesus. Now let's go back to the first point. Where to turn. So it's what it takes is belief, and here is where to turn. So who is this Jesus? Yeah, I want to preach this. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is the hope who lifts by grace. He is the hope who lifts by grace. Where do you see grace in this passage? Well, I see it in a couple places. First, I see grace, that we see the grace of God here as, it, as he deals with people in general, but also I see the grace of God as he deals with someone individually. And that applies to, both, to all of us, both of those. And the first thing that we see here is that he, 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 he is the hope. Who we turn to, Jesus, who is the hope who lives by grace, is, is what we find here and how he deals with people, how he's gracious toward people in general. We see again back in verse 44 and 45 that Jesus has just testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And, and so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Now, there's no commentary there, but you have to scratch your head and say, as, as some talked to me about this this week a little bit, is, okay, so why is it that if Jesus knows that a prophet has no honor in his own country, why would he then go home to his own country? Because Galilee is his own country. He came to the Galileans. The Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So why would he do that? Well, we see here that this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. Where do you see that? Well, as we said, received a welcome doesn't necessarily mean honored. But yet Jesus knows the hearts. And, what we're, and while they were not seeking him or seeking truth, but they were seeking signs, he still knows the hearts here. And so, while he knows that he's not going to receive honor, he still goes. That's the grace of God. When you think about what we learned in John chapter 1, verse 11, what did we hear there? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But he still came. Amen? It's the grace of God. Listen, we don't deserve that God sent his son to die for us, to come to this earth and to take our place on Calvary's cross. We don't deserve any of that. But he knew what he would receive. He knew the crucifixion, and yet he came. It's the grace of God. Amen? It's the grace of God toward us. But also we see the grace of God toward people in general that God has toward us, but also we see the grace toward an individual. In verse 49 and 50, we saw that it was a noble man, and we see what Jesus did here, that, he, that after he 
has says, sir, calm down before my child dies. He says, go your way, your son lives. Jesus has extended grace to the nobleman. Here's what we need to understand about that is that being a nobleman is that he would have been a king's man. He would have been a royal official, a king's officer. And the only king during that time frame where this was would have been Herod. You remember Herod? Herod is the one who is going to have John the Baptist killed. Herod is the one who is Jesus will stand before in a few years from now when this passage of scripture and and he will mock him and show him contempt. And this nobleman is attached to Herod somehow. And so Jesus, if it had been you or me, and we knew who he was, we would not have said anything. Well, that's just tough, buddy. You go let King Herod take care of it, right? That's not what Jesus does. He who knows all people and knows all things knew who this man was attached to, knowing that he's attached to King Herod, yet still extends grace, and the son is healed. Amen? You know, Paul is another example of that. What Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But the, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And so the grace that has been extended to the nobleman is the grace that has been extended to Paul is the grace that has been extended to you and to me. We do not deserve his mercy. We do not deserve his grace. We were rebellious against him, but yet he loved us and he came, knowing what he would receive. Aren't you thankful for that? And so he is the one. Jesus is that hope who lifts by grace. Well, what does he lift? He lifts us. He lifts us from the muck and the mire of sin, and he saves us from perishing. He lifts us from the old, and he brings us to the new. He lifts us from being dead in our trespasses and sins and gives us life. He did for us what he did for the nobleman's son. He spoke, and we went from death to life in an instant. That's what happened. It's the grace of God toward us. Where do we turn for hope? I'll tell you where to turn for hope. You don't turn to Oprah, you turn to Jesus, amen? That's where the hope is. It's the hope that lifts by grace, but also it's the hope who is limitless in glory. I know there's a P there on your uh, paper, but change it to a G. The hope who is limitless in glory, meaning that he is limitless in his glorious power, and then limitless in his glorious peace. We'll see in a minute. He's limitless in his glorious power. Jesus is able. Y'all got that? Jesus is able. Notice that Jesus speaks. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Then verse 52 and 53, we learn that it was at the very same moment that Jesus said, your son lives. The servants come and tell him that it was at that hour that the son was made well. Not that he got better but that he was well. The fever left him. It was an instantaneous, at the word of Jesus, the son is made well. Amen? At the very word of Jesus. Now understand, you know, it's kind of interesting as, you, as the nobleman is telling him about the son that he just come, 
come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. Nowhere there do we see that Jesus said, okay, I'm good with that. I just need to know his address. I need to know what he looks like. What room is he in? What house is it? No, he didn't have to do that. Why? Because Jesus knows all things, and he knew exactly where that son was. As a matter of fact, he was already there. Amen? And all Jesus had to do was speak, and it was so. Speak, and it was so. The power of the word of Jesus, who could turn the water into wine, who is the creator. He speaks, and things are brought into existence. He speaks, and it is so. It is the limitless. There are no limits to the power of God. There's no limits to what Jesus can do. It is the limitless power of his word. And he saves at a distance. And he saves instantaneously. He goes from death to life in a moment. You see, friends, aren't we glad about that? Because maybe there's some here today who say, well, you don't understand. I have no hope because you don't know how far away I am from God. You don't know how far away I am from where I should be. Well, I got good news for you today. That no matter how far you think you are from him, he is still able to save, heal, and deliver you. You know, I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. When Paul was talking to the Gentiles there in Ephesians, he says, That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, watch this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No matter how far you think you are, friends, I'm here to tell you that your hope is still Jesus Christ. He knows exactly where you are, and he is still able to heal and save and deliver you. Amen? No matter who you are. No matter who you are. So he's limitless in his power, his glorious power. And there's also he's limitless in his glorious peace. The peace. It's interesting to me. That this nobleman, of course, we, we can't get into the scripture. We can't dive into these words and hear all the things and see the surroundings and all take place. But if you put yourself in that nobleman's shoes or sandals, if you will, and you're telling, you, you, you know that your son is at the verge of death and Jesus is your only hope. And you are pleading with him and begging him and imploring him to come, to come with you, to heal your son. And then Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. And the next scene we see is that this, the father turns and goes his way because he believes the word of the Lord. There was something that happened there that calmed the man down, right? He had been begging and pleading, imploring him, but now there's something that happened, and that is that he now has the peace of God within him because there was something about the word and the voice of God that gives him calm assurance that his son is okay. You see, it's the voice, it's the authority of Jesus that when he speaks, we can trust him. Amen? When he speaks, we can trust him. But you know our problem today 
is we'd rather listen to all the other voices around us. All the other things that are around us. We know who we believe. We know what we believe. We know that he's the hope. But then we let all these other voices get in. I don't know if you all have ever been on an airplane before. <clears throat> I know this is why I typically see these things. But when you fly, a lot of times you'll see these people get in. They'll sit down and they'll put these headphones on. Some of you may be some of those people here as well. I don't have any of those. And I'm good with that, really. But they have these headphones. They put those on, and they're wanting, to, they're wanting to hear their music or hear their podcast, but the sound of the engines, the airplane, and all the things that go on inside of an airline is hard to hear because of the decibel level. Now, I don't know all the scientific stuff, but this is what I understand that those headphones that they have are what are known as anti-noise or noise-canceling headphones, okay? Now, don't send me any emails if I get this wrong. Just, just go with it, all right? But what I know about, what I've learned as I studied some this week about these headphones is that the way those things are made is that there's a microphone in those headphones. And what the microphone does is there's sounds all around them. It sounds, sends sound waves to the headphones. The microphone picks up those sound waves and sends out the exact same sound waves so that it cancels out all the sound except the sound they want to hear. That's just fascinating, isn't it? Man, that's good. But you know what's even better? Is that we have all the sounds of the world around us and the noise of the voices of the people and all the worldly things that are trying to get at us and distract us. If we could somehow not listen to those things and only listen to Jesus. And that happens when we filter all things through the word of Christ. Amen? And listen for his voice. And focus in on what he wants us to hear and acknowledge his authority. And it's amazing the peace and the assurance that comes and the noise of this world grows strangely dim. You remember that old song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your heart to Jesus, because, beloved, he is the only hope. Amen? He's the only hope. And he is there, and he is limitless in his power, he is limitless in his peace, and he will lift us by his grace. Trust him by faith. Two things to do, and I'm done. Number one is simply this. Be a believer. Be a believer. Not be a believed, where you believed at one point, and you're satisfied with that. No, be a believer. Come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior if you've never done that. It's a step of faith. The Bible tells us that we come to know the Lord as we acknowledge that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, turning from our sin, turning to Jesus Christ in humble repentance, embracing, believing with all of our heart that Jesus is God's Son who died on the cross and rose again bodily from the grave. We believe that, we embrace that, and we profess Him as the Lord and Savior of life. We take that step of faith. We come to know Him as Lord and Savior. But, beloved, we're not to stay there. We set the stake in the ground. Yes, I've trusted Jesus by faith, but let me tell you something. You're to continue to grow in that faith. Amen? So you exercise that faith. 
and you say to him, Lord, I want to learn, so teach me in your word. Help me to spend time with you in prayer. And Lord, I want to be obedient to you. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. Wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. Wherever you want me to speak up, I'm going to speak up. Lord, I want to be faithful to you. I want to grow in my walk with you. Be a believer. And then secondly, trust him with your life. There's nobody else you can say that about, right? Maybe your spouse. Certainly, your children could trust you with their life. But trust Jesus with your life. Everything about you, trust him with your life. And let me tell you something else. Maybe you're praying for a wayward child. Maybe you're praying for a wayward workplace, a situation. Trust Jesus with those people as well. Amen? Because he is still able to save, to heal, and to deliver. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. And he is always faithful and trustworthy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, may you have your way in our hearts and lives. And may you lead us to hear your voice. Lord, may we apply the word of God to our lives. Lord, where we need to be trusting you in a certain situation, trusting you in our own lives, trusting you with our finances, trusting you with our children, trusting you with what's going on in our communities or in our country, whatever the case may be. But Lord, yielding our lives to you, knowing and remembering that you're the one, the only one who lifts by grace, is gracious toward us, and that you are limitless in your power and limitless in the peace that you offer. So, Lord, we come to you. We ask that you'd forgive us where we've had a convenient belief. We've only come to you for how you can help us do what we want. And may you change that in us to a convinced belief, believing that you are who you say you are, and then growing in that belief, having it confirmed over and over and over again as we walk with you. So, Lord, be with us now as we come to this time of invitation. Those who need to come trusting you by faith, saying, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Lord, let them come and take one of these pastors by the hand and let us just pray with them. and They'll trust Jesus. But also, Father, for those of us who know you by faith but need to step out, Stephen, stepping out of our comfort zones and to live the life you've called us to live as your believers trusting you, knowing that you're our only hope. And now may you have your way as we come to this invitation. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing.